When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. This is our Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast number 11 of the 2022 hurricane season. On today's episode, I'll talk to the most energetic meteorologist I know, the amazing Matthew Capucci, the Capuch, from the Washington Post Capital Weather Gang, Fox 5 TV in Washington, My Radar Online, plus he's just published a book, Looking Up, The True Adventures of a Storm-Chasing Weather Nerd. If there's something interesting or thrilling or scary going on in the natural world, Matthew wants to be there. And amazingly, he's done already just about everything, and he's a long way from 30 years old. My conversation with Matthew Capucci is coming up in just a moment. I'm recording this on Monday, October 10th, 2022. Hurricane Julia made landfall yesterday in Nicaragua, and it's dumping a lot of rain in the mountains of Central America, which is always dangerous, of course. The storm is along the Pacific coast of South America now, but the weather pattern ahead is hostile, so it's expected to die out soon. There's a weak disturbance over the Yucatan Peninsula that has a slight chance of some development in the extreme southwestern Gulf of Mexico. That would be about midweek. But its window for life is very short. Whether it moves inland or strong upper-level winds kill it off first, that's an open question. It's not expected to be much more than a heavy rain threat for part of Mexico. The long-range computer forecast models show a strong cold front sweeping through Florida at the end of this week, driven by those same upper-level winds, actually. The front will prevent anything from threatening the U.S. out of the tropics into next week, at least, which raises the obvious question. Is hurricane season over? Well, given the forecast weather pattern over the southeast, the answer is, for the United States, probably yes. But we can't rule out another system or two or three forming somewhere in the Caribbean or out in the Atlantic where a non-tropical area of low pressure sits over the water because that water is still quite warm. The big topic of conversation, of course, is what happened during Hurricane Ian and why people in southwest Florida stayed in a zone where dangerous storm surge was forecast. I feel certain the bottom line is many people did not understand the threat. It's the only possible thing, right? It would be a tragedy if we don't learn from this event, if we don't try and figure it out. I'll have more thoughts on the communications leading up to the landfall of Hurricane Ian at the end of the podcast. So let's take a break, and I'll be back with my conversation with the Energizer Bunny of meteorologists, Matthew Capucci, in just a moment. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, Matthew, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Big fan. So let's go a little backward from when we first met. Uh, Until I read your book, I couldn't remember whether I first met you when you were 15 or 16, and you somehow wormed your way into giving a talk at the American Meteorological Society conference. And now that I read your book, um, I think you were 15. (laughs) Tell me about that. Were you trying to, like, uh, put a stake in the ground among the broadcast meteorologists? Was that the plan? I just wanted to like get in there and get to meet these folks because I, I figure learning is sort of like osmosis. The smarter the people you surround yourself with, the more you can learn. And 
I sort of reached the end of the rope in terms of the weather books I could read at my local elementary school, middle school, and high school. And I was getting to the point where if I wanted to learn real science, I had to surround myself by real scientists. And my goal was always to be a broadcast meteorologist. And I figured, you know, I, I had heard that so-and-so was going, that you'd be going, and Harvey Leonard would be going, and all these big-name meteorologists would be going. And I figured if I could get into that room and learn from those folks, it would be a, a great opportunity. But I'd done that in Boston the year before. And, you know, there were a lot of great people there, but I think a lot of folks looked at me and they're like, oh, who's that random kid? Is that the kid of one of the people here? Like, who is he? He's random. And so I figured the best way that I could interact with folks would be if I gave a presentation, then people would realize, oh, he kind of knows at least some of his stuff. Let's give him a, a talk and, you know, let's chat with him. And it kind of worked, I guess. I, mean, I remember, I remember chatting with you, <laughs> thinking, "Wow, who's this kid?" Uh, so, so you grew up in a time when, uh, when you always had internet, I guess, right? You you could head off in any direction on your computer that you could imagine. C can you imagine doing everything you've done when all the knowledge was just in books and you didn't even have a smartphone? So, it's kind of funny because we. And, and my parents will hate me for saying this. We never actually had our own internet until I was like in seventh or eighth grade. And prior to that, we uh, we had like dial up, but to get a web page would take two, two and a half minutes. No one could use a phone. I, I think my sister doesn't even remember those days. She's four years younger than me. High school, we had good internet. But prior to that, I would send away for books. I'd, I'd order weather books on eBay. And, you know, I'd be out there at the mailbox every morning, like a kid on Christmas morning, a kid on Christmas morning, rather, waiting there for these books. And I think my favorite book of all time has been Thomas Grisoules' Significant Tornadoes. It's like this 1,400-page tome. It weighs probably four or five pounds. Like it, I have it here. If an intruder ever comes in, I'll whip Significant Tornadoes out. But, but no, this thing was great because it was 1,600 pages, and I rapaciously devoured that thing cover to cover. And it, it was great to, to sort of get lost in a book like that. But no, I, one thing I love these days is that if I have a question, I can find the answer within 20, 30 minutes or at least find someone who knows the answer. And that's why I love the Internet. It connects you to great people. Yeah, man, no question. And you can use your imagination and go as deep as you want in any direction you want. So you grew up on Cape Cod, not exactly a hotbed of severe weather, although a region full of weather geeks and weather scholars, of course. So what triggered your weather passion, do you think? Honestly, I've always wondered that. You know, when I was two or three years old, I was obsessed with two things. The little methane vents in people's yards. I don't know why. And then the anemometer spinning on people's roofs. And I learned about wind. There was this book I had when I was four or five years old about what wind was. It was this illustrated book, a kid's book, but it just fascinated me. And I remember there was this one painting in there of a water spout. And it, of course, it was allegorical. It showed fish flying upwards and, and wasn't very realistic, but it just captured my imagination. And then I watched an episode when I was, I think, five or six of House Hunters. Like, it wasn't a show that was a weather show. And in the B-roll of that show, they had two water spouts touching down near this tropical island. And I was just transfixed. I was like, what are those? Like, why is the cloud touching the ground? And then when I was six or seven, I watched a documentary on tornadoes, and I was just hooked. And when I was seven, I saved my first communion money to buy a video camera so I could storm chase. It's just taken off from there. But Really, it was around like four or five. Just there was one book, and there's a water spout, and that was it. So it wasn't a storm; it was a book. That's that. That's a different uh, approach. Almost everybody. It's obviously it's a hurricane. It's a tornado. It's a blizzard. It, it's a something. So, so essentially, from when time you were a kid, you would, you decided I'm going to go chase tornadoes. Is that that yeah. that was the idea. It was always tornadoes. I remember my first day of high school. I was sitting in the back of the bus, making a bucket list of all the things I wanted to do someday. And the number one thing, I, I had this like pre-2020, pre-2025, and then pre-2050 bucket list. Mm -hmm. And on the pre-2020 was to go on a road trip. I, you know what's funny? This is when I was probably 13 or 14. One of my life goals at that point was to save enough money that I could go on an airplane trip or I could drive cross country. Another goal of mine was to, to have an employer that would pay for a plane ticket once. Just all these like random goals. And one of them was to travel cross country and storm chase. And my sophomore year of college was the first time I got to do that. And I have been hooked nonstop. It, you know, I, I have, you know, those, those uh, Christmas chains the kids make to count down the number of days until Christmas or a big holiday or whatever with the paper links. I used to have one of those in my dorm all year round and I would count down the days until I'd go storm chasing. And it was like the light at the end of my tunnel because college, I, I wasn't a big fan of college, but getting to storm chase every May, finishing my exams early and just taking off 
that was the highlight of my year. And even still, the contract I have with Fox 5, we built around me storm chasing. It's it's my thing. I love tornadoes. Yeah, I was going to say, because, I mean, normally people do finals in the middle of, of tornado <laughs> season, right? And um, I'm, I know you kind of circumvented that. So, okay, so you had that passion, but you also had this, I want to be a TV weather guy thing going. So you obviously weren't around for the New England blizzard of 78 when Harvey Leonard really made his mark in Boston and triggered any number of young people to study uh, meteorology. Was there a, a TV event or a person for you? You know, it really always was Harvey Leonard. I, I think just because my parents grew up watching Channel 5, and so we always watched Channel 5 in, in my household, and every time Harvey was talking, whatever was going on would just stop, and people would watch the weather. And it'd be three minutes of peace, quiet, and science. And, you know, when you're, you're growing up and you're five, six, seven years old, and you want to talk weather, you can't talk weather with your friends. They, they don't care. They're trading silly bands or Yu-Gi-Oh cards, whatever the kids do these days. You can't really talk to your teacher because the teacher will, you know, point you to a book in the library and that'll be it. But for three minutes a day, I got to talk weather with Harvey vicariously through the means of TV. And I just thought it was so fascinating that anytime there's something big, they got right to Harvey. Whatever Harvey said was, was the thing. And it was scientific. It was the, the most important part of the news. And it just seemed like such a good way to communicate information, but also to, to communicate science, which I think is desperately needed these days. And I, I figured, you know, I want that someday. It's funny, though, because I'm still like, I, I've known Harvey for years. I'm still petrified to talk to him. Like, I get so starstruck. My legs shake. Even on the phone, like, we, we chatted last year right before I started Fox 5. I think I was more nervous for Harvey's phone call than I was to be on air at Fox. Uh, and, and Harvey, Harvey uh, was is such a great storyteller. That's oh, the yeah. thing. I think that's what you got from Harvey because he's one of the all-time great meteorological storytellers. Doesn't make it complicated. It's like, okay, folks, one, two, three, here we go. This is yeah. what uh, what we're looking at. Uh, yeah, he's uh, one of the great, just recently retired from WCVB in Boston. So along the way, you went to Mike Mogul's weather camp, uh, which I think at the time was at Howard University in Washington, if I remember right. Yeah, uh, if there was something ever designed for weather nerds, I think that's it. Led by like chief weather nerd Mike Mogul, who's always I've known him for decades, had a tremendous passion for teaching weather to everybody, actually, but especially to kids. What was that experience like? It was the first time. So while I was there, it wasn't that I learned so much weather. It was more that I was around other people who loved weather. Growing up, if you're in middle school and you love weather, the kids are going to tease you. They're going to torment you a little bit. They're not going to look at you like, wow, that's great. You want to be a scientist. And yet suddenly when you're in a group of 11 other people who love weather as much as you do, and you're the one who's probably the most passionate, that makes you almost like the, the group leader, like the prom king of the group. It was the first time I ever felt like I was popular. And it, it lasted only two weeks. It was a great feeling, though. But it was like, wow. If I find my people and these are my people, like this is the community I'm meant to be a part of, great things can happen. And so it was great personally and professionally. The other thing that was nice too was that, you know, I grew up on Cape Cod where we'd get five, ten thunderstorms a year and there are garden variety storms. We saw hail in DC. We saw a rotating wall cloud. We saw all sorts of cool stuff. And we all got to be there rushing outside together to watch that. And it was just such an amazing experience. And right then and there, I was like, you know what? I got to go to college and a meteorology school. I'll, I'll meet other kids who like weather. Like, this will be my life for four years. It'll be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a great start. I, I mean, I give uh, Mike a lot, a lot of credit for oh, yeah. really uh, helping out a lot of kids to get their mind focused uh, on it. So all of this was going on while you were in public school, which is really not designed for weather nerds, as you, as you said. So I, I take it you felt kind of, out of place there, and but uh, I read your book, so I know that that uh, changes came your way. They definitely did. So I went to a charter school for high school, which we call the Island of Misfits, and that it really was. It was an eclectic school. We had about a hundred kids per grade, and there was no bullying there at all, which was such a foreign experience coming from middle school. I, I think everybody was their own sort of oddball, and by virtue of that, no one was odd. If that makes sense, like everyone. So no one's weird. Even the teachers. I remember, you know, the, the first day of, of school, my English teacher walked in with 
you know, she, she didn't look like a conventional English teacher. Her, she had tattoos everywhere, spiky hair, and yet she was the best English teacher I'd ever had. Or my math teacher came in in Birkenstocks and in like jogging clothes. He had jogged to work and brought in like a, two grocery bags of Trader Joe's and started handing out treats. Amazing math teacher. Or we didn't even have an art room. We had a, an art, basically a house that the school had bought down the street. And we'd go to this random house, which had a bunch of art supplies and paint and do whatever. But the first day we were all in there waiting for our art teacher to come in. No one ever shows up. And then this crazy guy off the street comes in with a hammer running inside the building, which would never fly these days. And only then did we find out he was the art teacher. He was trying to make a grand entrance. So just a bizarre school. And yet it was the perfect environment for me, the island of misfits. And I was the, the king of the misfits. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can imagine that. I also went to a high school where they were over the door. It said imagination is as important as knowledge. And uh, and they really lived that. They you know, the whole thing was about. English class was about, um, you know, imagination. Imagine this happening. Well, how would you write about that? Uh, uh, so I remember, well, thinking about what you said about bucket lists and so forth, uh, I can tell you're very much of a planner, which is kind of the opposite of me, by the way. I'm more a preparer, and then I kind of take things as they come. Uh, but at some point in high school or before, you must have imagined what your college experience was going to be like. And I remember the first time you told me you were going to Harvard, I thought, well, that's interesting, because since I never heard of a Harvard meteorologist before, and I'm sure you knew that creating a new kind of program would be hard. I mean, did you imagine at all ahead of time what that was going to entail? and Or was that a situation in your life where kind of the pieces just fell into place and you had to follow them as you went? feels kind of different than other aspects of your life to me. Yeah, that, that the whole Harvard thing came about in a very strange way in that I was never really focused on where I would go to school. I, I just always assumed I'd go to Linden State. I was more concerned with how I would pay for it because, you know, the price tag over four years would come to $110,000, $120,000, and I just didn't have that kind of money. And so I spent all of my senior year applying to scholarships and only applied to Harvard and Cornell. And while applying to these scholarships, my mother and I happened upon a little blurb that said, Cornell will match the price of any other Ivy League school. And... You know, some schools give great financial aid, others don't, but Harvard had the best endowment and they give the best financial aid. And so I figured, why not? I'll apply, get in, hopefully have Cornell match the offer, like the Walmart price match guarantee. And yeah, so I never took the application to, to Harvard seriously. I never knew they interviewed. The lady called me like four times. I, I ignored her and then I kind of yelled at her on the phone thinking she was a telemarketer. I, you know, I didn't take the supplemental essay seriously. I just never really took it seriously. And then by some miracle, I got in and I was forced to make a very tough choice. And I figured, you know, you can always transfer out of Harvard. You only get to transfer in once. And that's when you get the, the golden ticket to start. And I was like, well, we can make it work. And we'll give it a whirl. Yeah. And it was uh, it was a lot. Um, if you, <laughs> you want to read an experience, read uh, Matthew's book about that. Hey, Brian here. I'll be back with the Energizer Bunny of Weather, Matthew Capucci, after this quick break. So before you were finished, Harvard, Hurricane Matthew was heading toward the Florida East Coast. So, of course, you couldn't let that go. Uh, talk about that adventure. Yeah, so I was in uh, my physics lab one night. This was, I think, my sophomore year of college. And I just got my atmospheric sciences major, like, officially codified and, and made into a real major about a week before. And I was in this, like, somewhat boring physics lab. And, of course, as one does, and my laptop open, pretending to take notes. And really, I was looking at models. And... It, it just seemed that the GFS kept taking this storm a little bit closer to the space coast of Florida, a little bit closer to the, tre the, the treasure coast. And I kept thinking, you know, the eye might stay just offshore, but if it does swing a little closer, maybe I can get into the eye wall or maybe I can get into the eye. And it had always been on my bucket list to stand inside a storm with my own name. I knew that after what happened in Haiti, we'd probably never have a, a Hurricane Matthew again. So... By the end of the class, I had booked tickets, booked hotels, booked a backup hotel, 
And the next day I flew down through Atlanta and, and to Daytona Beach, Florida. The issue when I got there was that I realized, and there were only five people in the flight going down, which is a baptism by fire when you're going into the storm and no one else in the airplane, you're like, huh, maybe there's a reason they're not on the airplane flying down. But I, I get and to it Daytona was full Beach. going back, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. They, they turn around, they fill that thing up and everyone was uh, hightailing it out of there. Right. But I wind up going to where my hotel was on a barrier island. And, and, you know, it's a little squally. We still have like another 18 hours until landfall. And the hotel's closed. I'm like, that's weird. They said they were going to stay open no matter what. So I go to my backup hotel and there's no one there. There are sandbags. Apparently they've hightailed out of there too. And so now uh, I'm on the barrier island. My phone dies. I have nowhere to go. And finally I hitch a ride with CNN to the airport. Uh, they take me to the airport. I wind up going to three different hurricane shelters. Long story short, I went to the police station briefly and I wound up in Champion Elementary School and I was there for the entire duration of the storm. And it was a, a hurricane shelter for those who basically needed a place to stay, whether those be people who just couldn't ride it on their own, had close to property, you know, were, were elderly, didn't have the medications they need, whatever. This was kind of a, a place for everyone who needed a, a place to go. And that's when I started to see sort of the, the more human impact of hurricanes. And I think that was a good experience. It, it was a, a crazy experience, but a good experience. Yeah, and it's the assortment of people that show up in a hurricane shelter is, a, is an experience in, in and of itself. There's no question about it. And Matthew uh, was retired because of the effects in, in Haiti is what you were saying. So yeah. there's not going to be another hurricane, Matthew. Yeah. So you talk in your book a, a lot about the angst that you were feeling toward the end of college. You really wanted a TV weather job, but starting in a small market is not easy. They yeah. pay you in opportunity and sunshine and uh, not money, right? Especially if you're in Florida, they pay you in sunshine. Elsewhere, maybe an opportunity. But Jason Salmonow at the uh, Capital Weather Gang came through. Uh, the Capital Weather Gang is essentially the weather department at the Washington Post that both you and I have uh, worked with Jason and and uh, enjoyed that very much. I guess you're still doing that. Uh, so that was a writing job, and you write wonderfully. Uh, I, you know, I can feel your enthusiasm in what you write. And not every meteorology science person can do that. Where did that come from in you? I, I kind of grew up around teachers. My, my aunt was a teacher. My other aunt was a teacher. And I thought to myself about all the people who made the biggest difference in my life, and they were all teachers. And... You know, I think back to Mr. Karspeck and the math teacher in, in high school or Mr. Kara, how he, he explained things in, in physics and he could make complex subjects so straightforward and so digestible. I remember being about, gosh, nine or 10 years old and my younger sister, Emily, was in first or second grade and she was struggling to learn angles and how angles were, you know, acute, obtuse, right? And so I lined up my parents and I had Emily stand there too. And I said, Emily, you're gonna learn angles. And I, I walked over first to, to, to Emily and I said, now, Emily, you're small. People think you're cute. You're little. You're an acute angle. I took her arms and I made them like this, like an acute angle. She was like, oh, cute, little. Then I went to my dad. Dad's always type A. He always thinks he's right. He has to be perfect all the time. He keeps things neat. He's a nice, neat 90 degrees. And she was like, oh, right, perfect angle, whatever. And then I walked over to my mother and She'll kill me for saying this in a podcast, but I said, you know, mom's a, a, carries a little extra weight. Some might call her obtuse. Obtuse means slightly larger. And my mother was playing along with it, of course, and, and she was laughing and whatnot. And Emily was like, oh, obtuse, a big angle. And, and suddenly, like, it clicked. And I realized that through mnemonics or through examples or real-life illustrations, people can understand these complex subjects. Not that angles are complex, but I tried to approach weather the same way. There's no reason why we can't explain what conditional symmetric instability is to Joe Schmo, the average reader, if we do it in a soft serve way. And I, I think academia in general is just not accessible to the public. But if we teach in a way that people can get it, that's the goal. So I, I don't consider myself a writer. I don't consider myself a TV person. I don't consider myself a radio person. I'm a teacher who happens to appear in the post or happens to be on TV. And that's how I approach the job. Yeah, that's a great way to approach it. So uh, you you came out of college. You didn't get the TV job you right away that you had in mind, but you did get the Capital Weather Gang job, which is essentially a writing job. And then you kind of made that job in your own image, I think. You blew up social media and did nonstop videos. I'm thinking, though, all of that was on purpose to some degree because you wanted to get the attention of, of TV stations. Is that fair? 
everything was definitely calculated in that I, I remember chatting with Dan Satterfield, a, a meteorologist who was a, he actually the chief meteorologist at WBOC in Salisbury, Maryland, great friend of mine, just an amazing mentor. And we were talking about this and I had been at the post for about a month and Jason is the best boss in the entire world. And it was kind of me in a weird spot in that I loved my boss and I did not like my job because writing is, you know, I was sort of on a hamster wheel writing all the time. And it just, I knew this wasn't like the, the finish line for me. This was just sort of the start. And I, I thought to myself, how can I get from here to where I want to go, which is to be on all platforms, which also includes being on TV in a good market. So you were 22-ish at this point, right? So I think you were a long way from the finish line. But anyway, 21. But 21. All right. All right. All right. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> Just so to I, make that I, clear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we start talking I, I, about the finish line. <laughs> All well, right. I, I, I had such bad, I shouldn't say even bad luck. You know, no one at 21 when I applied for TV jobs would take me seriously. Imagine. And I, I told myself, I'll get to DC. I'll give it two years. And if it doesn't work in two years... I'll abandon meteorology for something that pays more because I can either have passion and do a job I love for at the time I viewed for lesser money or have a higher paying job and just do weather as a, a hobby. And I told myself by July 14th, 2021, if I didn't have a TV job, I'd give up. And so or I'd sort of move on. And so while I was the Washington Post, I, we began doing radio hits for the local NPR affiliate and my voice carries a lot of inflection and I, I'm very folksy on the radio in a way that makes a big city seem like a little small town. And within like a month and a half, the response we were getting was, was crazy. Now, at one point I, I joked, oh, if you like today's weather, mail a friend a chocolate cake or, or mail me a chocolate cake or whatever. And, and cakes start showing up at the Washington Post. And I was like, wow, people are actually listening. And so the pandemic came. And during the pandemic, I figured, what's the only non-sad news people get? The weather. Let's use these brief 45 second hits to teach some science, but also make the world a better place a little and, and just you know make it feel smaller. And we did, and, and the response was great. Around the same time, we were working remote, there were hurricanes and I got to go chase some hurricanes, but I figured with all these eyeballs on me as I go into the storm, there might be some TV networks that, that need free hits. And so BBC News, Sky News Arabia, all these uh, networks would be reaching out asking me to appear. And so I viewed it as an opportunity to make a field demo reel, if you will, between that and then my storm chasing videos of me in Oklahoma, me with the Northern Lights, explaining the science real, tar- real time, it's a cobbled together into something that I could be taken seriously with if I emailed to, to outlets. And so in June, and remember, my expiration date for TV was July 14th of 2021. Of course, in, there's an expiration date. <laughs> of course. Right, go ahead. In, in, in early to mid-June, uh, I saw an opening at Fox 5 in D.C., and that, that was the station I had always watched while I was here. And they need a freelance meteorologist. And I figured, you know, this is a long shot, but I sent them my reel. And I basically said in the cover letter, like, I don't have conventional experience, but if I can stand in front of a tornado or in the eye of a hurricane and teach science and speak well, I can do it in a TV studio in front of a map where people are not throwing softball size hail at me. And it, the, the news director, Paul McGonigal, gave me a call and, and said, you know, let's have an interview. I said, okay, we had the interview. And... It, it was the first time I ever really felt like I was taken seriously in an interview and I slipped right into weatherman mode. Like I, I was re- retelling all my stories. I think my passion came through and he basically said, I'd rather have someone who is passionate than someone who does the same stuff everyone else does. And is just a, a you know, a, a good speaker. And he took a chance on me and it made the biggest impact anyone's ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you're working at Fox five on your first day. So what was that like? Uh, like, were you in love? I walked in and picture like a kid in a candy shop times 10. I'd walk in, I'd be like, there's the green screen. The cameras are robotic. And then like the talents who I had seen on air too. For example, Jim Loke, the main anchor there, I had briefly crossed paths with when I was, I think, 14. So I had gone to WCVB in Boston. Jim also used to work there. And he was the morning anchor. And I was part of like the, the Mass Broadcasters Association scholarship. And part of that, we got to go there and watch a newscast. And at the time, I was too nervous to say hi to Jim because I was a big fan. I'd, I'd watch him every day on, on the news. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, that's Jim. And, and now he works at Fox 5. And I still get a little bit starstruck every time like he's the anchor and I'm the meteorologist. I'm like, but, but we're coworkers. And so walking into a TV studio and all these people who've been doing it for years 
it is is overwhelming, especially when most of them are old enough to be your parent, if not grandparent. And then there's there's me. And what the best part was, was that around like two or 3 p.m. on my first day, which, mind you, is 13 days ahead of my like expiration date. So the universe had a plan. But I walk in and, you know, there, there were tornado warnings the first day. And so rather than having stood on the sidelines, they say, Mike up, like, you know your stuff, do it. And it, it could not have gone better. And that evening, you know, we had an EF1 tornado move through downtown DC and I was on air. And it was again, baptism by fire, but it was exactly what I needed to A, make an impression with viewers and B, kind of get comfortable in my own skin. And that just uh, preceded even more severe weather tornado events in the next couple months. Yeah, well, that's uh, it's a sign of good management, actually, that, that you know, that's unconventional kind of management to take a chance on somebody, but to have a good feel for for talent and and for people and what they can do and then give an opportunity to do it that that says a lot about uh, the people uh, running fox 5 so so you're working kind of part-time at fox 5 you're chasing tornadoes and hurricanes you're still writing for the capital weather gang and and doing radio on wamu and uh, and many other places around the world and somehow you had time to write a book uh, is that something you always wanted to do or did that just come to you? <laughs> You're going to laugh. It was on my bucket list to do it by 25. Of course. It came out August 2nd, so I made it by 11 days. I'm always down to the wire for everything. And it's funny because I made this bucket list way long ago when I was like fourth or fifth grade. And yet, like I said, a planner for sure. That's, there's something astrological about that. There, that I, I swear I made a deal with the devil when I made this list. But yeah, so I, I when I was... I had been here for about a month and a half here in D.C. writing for the Washington Post. This was back in, I think, 2019. And an agency in Alexandria reached out and said, hey, you know, you, you write weather in an unusual way. We like your, your voice, so to speak, in, in writing. Would you ever like to write a book? And I was like, yeah, definitely. And we tossed around some ideas. We're going to write about Houston, Hurricane Harvey. And this was pre-pandemic. And, and publishing kind of took a, a downturn during the pandemic. And, you know, the pitch could have been better but I, I think they just knew it wouldn't really resonate because it wasn't a personal experience and then during the pandemic i did all this traveling of course safely and saw the northern lights you know chase the northern lights from a, a van in alaska like a u-haul van or i went and and took my buddy to chase tornadoes or i went down to chile a couple times for eclipses and then i got the job at fox 5 and and you know within two months i had a, a tornado like live on air from annapolis maryland and, and all these random things and, and suddenly they emailed me they said matthew like this is your story, your, your career thus far, all these random adventures. That's the book. That's the story. And so we, we got a book deal and they had said to me, when, when would you like to sort of target this to be out by? Like 2023, 2024? I said, I want this ASAP. Like, when can we get it done? They said the earliest pub date is August 2nd, 2022. I said, okay, when would you need the manuscript? And remember, this is like mid to late September. And they said December 31st. I said, all right. And so I wrote it in like 87 days and it's 93, 94,000 words, but it was fun to write because when I'm writing, you know, for the Washington Post, that's purely like strictly newspaper writing. Whereas this, like I can have some fun writing it. I, I can sort of flex my writing muscles in, in an enjoyable way. So, all right, you did that in a little less than uh, three months, which I know is a, is a task because I had a couple of experiences that were like that too. Uh, but normally writing a book is like, it's like a multitasking, uh, doesn't allow you to multitask is what I meant to say, because uh, you got to kind of concentrate, right? So during that time, I mean, were you still doing 17 other things as long, uh, while you were writing the book or did you oh, yeah. actually pause? You did. Well, that's, that's extra impressive because <laughs> I, I know so. from having done that a couple of times. Fox 5, I'd literally be doing a morning show and, and I'd be, you know, I'd have my laptop kind of closed during the, the show and during the commercial breaks. I'd open it, write a couple sentences, go back to doing the weather, go back to doing traffic, whatever. I, I'd, and usually I'd be doing Fox 5 in the morning. So like I'd get there at 2, 2.30 and be done by about 10.30 or 11. I'd write my Washington Post article, go home, do a video for my radar, nap for about 30 minutes to an hour. I'd go to, uh, there's a place near my apartment called Dos Amigos, and, and I'd sit there, have a margarita or two, sometimes more, and write, 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 and rinse and repeat. And the three months went by like this. I, I don't remember too much of those three months because it was always so busy, but I like being busy. Like even right now, I, you know, I, and, and I sense that you're sort of the same way. I just like having stuff to do 24 seven because I enjoy what I do. All my bosses, like all my different companies really are, are phenomenal. And as long as they let me do it and let me put my own weird spin on it, 
then I'll do it as much as I can. So you, you wrote about your amazing adventures and weather science, and but you also wrote a lot about yourself and how you were feeling at various stages in your life. Did, did you set out to put so much of yourself in it or did it just evolve in your writing? It, it felt like you really wanted people to know not just what you were doing, but what you were feeling. I, I think that was important for me to include for, for two reasons. I think number one, if I'm setting out to write a book about sort of my journey, it would be remiss of me to not include sort of what, what my personal journey was like to, to sort of go through all these things and to, to, you know, really want something to occur. I think so often, especially in the media, we see people's, I don't want to use the word finish line because I'm, I'm certainly not done yet, but, but we see when people get to where they want to be. We don't see the process. We don't see the, the ups and the downs. And especially in an era earmarked by social media, you know, we only see people's highlight reels and that's not really how life is. And so I wanted to include in this book that, yeah, there are, are sunny days and there are certainly rainy days too. Ultimately, there'll be more sunny days and rainy days. And, and, but, you know, the more rainy days you have, that makes those sunny days that much sweeter. And, and so I tried to include that as a running theme throughout the book. I think too, part of it was also, I, I felt that I owed it to people. If folks are, are spending their money to, to hear what I have to say, it's because either they think what I have to say is valuable or they want to know more about me. And I, I owe it to them to sort of share more about me than I, I conventionally would, uh, you know, really anywhere. Hey, Brian here. I'll be back with the busiest guy I know in the weather business, Matthew Capucci, after this quick break. So, so I, I waited to talk to you about tornado chasing and storm chasing in general. This feels like something beyond a passion for you. Did you feel deprived as a child or something growing up on Cape Cod? Uh, I mean, you talked about, you know, coming out of a book you read when, when you were young, but it seems like it blossomed way beyond just, boy, that would be fun to do into something that uh, it's hard now that I know more, know you better from reading the book. Hard to imagine you not doing. Absolutely, I, I you know growing up, my parents had to ban the word tornado in the household because every time there'd be a thunderstorm, we'd be like, oh, maybe there'll be a tornado. You know, as a little seven-year-old, and Emily, my younger sister, who was three at the time, would scream "blue bloody murder" because she is petrified of all things storminess. Like even a thunderstorm is enough to have her kind of hiding at home. Now, the last tornado or water spout to occur in Cape Cod during my childhood was August 20th, 1997. And I was eight days old at that point, seven days old. And, and so I missed it. I wasn't paying attention. And that was it for really my entire childhood until I went to college. And, and really when I went to study abroad, only then did we start getting real storms on Cape Cod. And we've had seven, six or seven tornadoes within 10 miles of my house since, which hurts, definitely stings, <laughs> but... <laughs> No, yeah, I think you've had many enough uh, or plenty of tornadoes in your life to make up for that, though. Nowadays, yeah, but but I think we always sort of long for what we what we don't have. We're, we're always curious about what else is out there. And for me, tornadoes were the one thing that I, I couldn't check off on Cape Cod. Yeah, we get winter storms, we got thunder snow, we get more snow than you want. Plenty of nor'easters. Wind is cool, but I wanted tornadoes and I wanted jumbo hail. On August sixteenth, two thousand eight, uh, I remember being about gosh. 12 or 13 years old, and I was watching the radar on, on WCVB on the, the website, and I said to my parents, hey, we're going to get, like, golf ball-sized hail. And they're like, okay, yeah, whatever. And, and sure, like, 20 minutes later, we got golf ball-sized hail, which never happens on Cape Cod. Exactly. And from then on, I was hooked. I was like, I need more hail. I need tornado. Like, I got to see what softball-sized hail can do to my car, that sort of thing. So is that your goal? Or I guess I'm still not 100%, even after reading your book, uh, of what your your goal is when you're driving hundreds of miles a day around the grids in the, the plains uh, to get in the best possible position to see a giant tornado. Is it to get the best tornado picture so that you have that forever? Is it to feel the tornado and the energy and the smell that you kind of take in when you're around an intense storm? Uh, or is it just kind of everything? 
It, it, it's everything, really. It, it's the fact that, you know, when you grow up with this passion, you can read about it in a book or you can go out there and, and see it and do it. And for me, it, it's just amazing to, to witness something that seems otherworldly firsthand. To, to picture a supercell, something the size of Mount Everest floating and spinning before you it is almost a spiritual experience. And for me to be there, it just it is awe-inspiring. At the same time, too, I get to see things every day that most people don't even know exist or, or wouldn't believe exist. And so me taking photos is a way to make that science accessible to other people, sort of e even in my book, to tell these tales, but to show the results, the fruits of my labor, so to speak, puts that personal spin on it and, and gets folks intrigued and excited. And, and also comes in handy with, like when I'm doing teaching or demos or whatever. I think, too, there are a lot of meteorologists out there who, you know, sure, they got some passion, but I view them as distant meteorologists in that they'll spend years covering tornadoes on TV or covering hurricanes or covering whatever without having ever actually experienced it themselves. I think to really be good at one's job, you have to be out in the field experiencing and doing it. When I do tornado coverage, you know, I, and I've done tornado coverage on air plenty of times. I, I've had other meteorologists at, at different stations and, and even folks who I know, you know, all over the place point to the radar and say, you know, here's where the tornado is. That That's fine and well, but to most people, a tornado looks like a bucket of spilled paint. But if I can say, hey, if you're in Snell or Spotsylvania Courthouse right now, you're seeing a rugged cloud to the left, you're seeing, you know, X, Y, Z, you might see something rushing this way. Like, if I can put myself to where these people are and tell them what environmental cues they're facing, that will make them say, hey, he's been there, he's done this, he's lived this, he knows what I'm going through, we should trust him a little bit more, let's take shelter. So I think that by being in the field lends more credibility to me. I think we saw that manifest on September 1st last year. I ran out of my station basically saying to the bosses, like, I'm going to prove myself, like, watch what I can do. And I wasn't even working that day, but I was like, watch this. And I drove to where I thought a tornado would touch down. And sure enough, I wound up about 800 feet away from this EF2 in, in Annapolis, Maryland. And I have my phone out and I'm like, hey, gang, Fox 5 Meteorologist, Matt Kucha, here's a tornado, whatever. Doing that explainer for folks and getting it back to the station so we can run that. And if folks see that... They're like, huh, this kid knows his stuff. That's yeah. kind of the goal. Know your stuff, and we're a little bit lucky. You know, one of the most important things that I talked about during the Hurricane Andrew coverage was what it was going to sound and feel like. The, the pressure changes and the sound that people were going to experience in their homes, and people after the fact told me that that, that prepared them so when it happened, they weren't as afraid because they you know they knew that that was right even though it was terrible and it was and the overall thing was scary just feeling and hearing um wasn't uh, wasn't the worst of it so do your parents or uh, jason your boss the washington post get worried about you are they more worried now that they've read your book <laughs> I, I think my mother is slightly more worried i would think uh, a, a little bit i, I think Beforehand, it was almost like a, a don't ask, don't tell policy when it came to weather and that like it, they'd see the pictures on Facebook, Twitter. I'd give them a call. I'd, I'd periodically text them to let them know I'm, I'm OK. But this book sort of fills in the gaps where my parents didn't have a text or didn't have a phone call at that point. They were wondering what was going on. I, I think this has made my mother a little bit more nervous. But I think also the fact that I sort of talked through my logic, like why am I targeting the store and why am I going to the certain area? I think it shows them that. I don't take unnecessary risks. Like the behavior of storm chasing to begin with is inherently dangerous to an extent, but if you do so in a calculated, methodical manner, you can stay safe. And I, I try to include sort of the thought process behind everything in the book. Jason at the post, I feel like he, he, he trusts me and he's just like, what the hell is that kid up to now? Because like, <laughs> I'm popping up here in the tornado, I'm popping up over in you know, Mardella, Maryland, popping up wherever. And, and I always seem to be in, in the right spot. And he's like, well, Whatever you do, just keep us updated. <laughs> exactly. I can, yeah, I can imagine. So can you imagine having like a regular job, like a TV job that, you know, kept you in the station during tornado season or when something was going crazy outside? I mean, would you explode or, or what would uh, happen in that I, situation? Because, you know, that could happen to you. You could actually get hired one of these days. <laughs> so it, it's actually kind of interesting in that Fox 5 offered me a full-time job and I wound up working with them to craft a role that would allow me to do what it is I do. Because I think my brand and what makes me successful with viewers is that I'm not the one who 
is going to be in, inside, you know, 24 seven. I'm the one who I might disappear for a little while, but when I come back, you'll see a video of a tornado, or you'll see whatever, or I'll come back with some cool new science to share. And I think my boss at Fox really saw the value in that. So he worked with me to craft a, a role and to craft this weird TV contract that would let me do everything. And same thing with, with you know, the, the Washington Post and same thing with my radar. They basically are like, you do your thing and just keep us involved and, and keep putting out good stuff. And I mean, I'm not the perfect broadcaster. I, I talk too fast. I sometimes jumble my words. But I think as long as that passion shows through and the contract they gave me allows me to, to keep that passion going, I think that's what matters. And you know, just a, a testament to, to my bosses, their flexibility, their creativity. Yeah, I mean, you found good bosses. There's no question about it. So, so on a personal level, do you ever worry that – you know, you will have seen everything and done everything by the time you're 30. When do your your bucket lists run? No, you said your bucket lists run into middle age or or something, uh, you know. But, I mean, obviously, you've done a tremendous amount for a 26-year-old. Is, is 25. It, uh, 25, okay. Well, whatever. <laughs> you've done even more for a 25-year-old. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, you've seen a lot, done a lot, felt a lot. Um, you know, any worry that that things in the future might not be grand enough? All the time. I, I do worry about that. You know, Tucker Barnes, the, the morning meteorologist at my station, told me to keep adding things to my bucket list because he brought up the same point. You know, Steve Chenevy, the, the morning anchor I work with, brought up the same point that, yeah, I've kind of burned through this bucket list or, or through a lot of it rather quickly. But there are also much more difficult things in the bucket list. I think one thing in life that has almost surprised me a little bit, and these are things on my bucket list, is that the things I thought would be the easiest to accomplish have been the most difficult, and those that I thought would be the most challenging have been the easiest. I had always it'd been on my bucket list to you know get a tornado on air in my home market, whatever that market would be. I never thought I'd get a tornado on air in D.C. Like all, all these little puzzle pieces that you know, or, or I never thought I'd make it on air in D.C. by the time I was twenty-three. Just these, these random things that professionally, like the bucket list is going great. So I think now I want to focus on my personal bucket list, you know, finding my person, getting married, having kids, all that stuff, and having more people to show these awesome things are, these, th these things too. Because ultimately, my passion is not just seeing and experiencing these things on my own, it's sharing that with others. So if I can grow my platform, share these things with more people, that's the joy of it. It's like, you know, Christmas is most fun, or holidays are most fun when you have young kids, because you get to see the magic in their eyes. I, I feel that way with viewers. I get to show them things that are amazing and, and teach them a little bit. And that's what makes the job special. So if I can keep doing that while adding to my bucket list, that, that'll that be a, a recipe for, for a successful life. Yeah, well, there's no doubt about that. But uh, and as long as you stay safe, uh, <laughs> it's all good, I guess. Well, everybody loves your passion, Matthew. And it's been wonderful seeing you grow into a real professional uh, here over the last uh, 10 years, which is pretty amazing. Thanks so much for coming on. That means the world. It's uh, thanks to, to folks like you who have made this path what it is. All right. Be well, Matthew. I'll be right back. And welcome back. Isn't Matthew amazing? It's going to be fascinating to see where his life takes him when he grows up, so to speak. So check out his book, Looking Up, The True Adventures of a Storm-Chasing Weather Nerd. It's stunning how much adventuring he's packed into his young life. Before I wrap up, a few words about the communications debacle that contributed to so many people making terrible personal decisions in the days before Hurricane Ian's landfall. I knew people focused on the cone, but I didn't know to what degree that was true. The cone has such an outsized influence, it blots out critical information, so people end up misinformed. And when I say people, I mean residents, county officials, the governor of Florida, and the administrator of FEMA. They all honestly thought, and still think apparently, that the Fort Myers area was not a high-threat zone because they were on the edge or just out of the cone. That's a total misunderstanding of what the cone is designed to communicate, and that's a huge problem. 
The critical piece of information was the storm surge forecast, first issued on Sunday ahead of the Wednesday storm. It predicted four to seven feet of storm surge, in other words, gulf water above normal high tide with waves on top of that. And of course, that up to seven feet of water would come over top of islands with only two or three feet of elevation. If that information were front and center, I can't imagine so many people would have stayed. How could they? Or at least they would have started to think about leaving so when the higher forecast came in, they could take action. It just makes sense, I think, doesn't it? I don't know. I don't know. This is so crazy that so many people stayed in such a dangerous place. They should have been led through this whole decision-making and thinking process starting Friday of the previous week by Lee County officials. They knew what the situation was, but the county's communication protocols were either poorly designed and or not executed. I don't know. Everybody involved needs to do better and be sure that all threatened areas are constantly highlighted, taking the focus off the center of the cone. With a large hurricane, life-taking conditions always extend far outside the cone. That should have been the only message And it should have been conveyed over and over. The whole thing is a nightmare. So be sure you subscribe to our Tracking the Tropics podcast so you can get an alert when the next podcast is posted. A reminder, download the Fox Weather app. First, you can get your local forecast without all the annoying ads. And you can watch the live stream of Fox Weather on your phone or iPad by just clicking in the upper right. And to find out how to watch Fox Weather, Google how to watch Fox weather. There are more outlets all the time and streaming services and on uh, cable and everything. Else. So uh, just Google it, how to watch Fox weather. So I'll see you there on the Fox weather stream when the tropics are active and follow me on Twitter at B Norcross and on Facebook and Instagram. Just put in Ryan Until next time, I am Brian Norcross. Be well and stay informed. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.